So hello and welcome everyone to another episode of Afikra. Uh, I'm Ashraf Abi Saeed, a game developer from Lebanon, and today I'm going to be having a chat with Fauzi. Hi Fauzi. Hi Ashraf, thank you for having me. Of course, it's a pleasure. Um, so Fauzi, um, I would love to introduce you, but I think you would do a much better job of doing that yourself. So would you go ahead and tell us what you've done, who you are and stuff like that? Hi, uh, cool. Um, hello everybody, my name is Fauzi Mesmar. I am um, a game designer, creative leader, and author. I've been working in the games industry for now around 20 years. I started off as an independent developer from uh, Jordan in the Middle East, where me and a bunch of friends wanted to make a, an independent game back in 2003 while we were in university. And um, across several uh, places around the world and a lot of vi video games from the Middle East to New Zealand to Japan to Europe. I've uh, worked on a lot of different video games across several companies. I was um, head of design at EA looking after the Battlefield and the Star Wars Battlefront franchises. And uh, I'm currently VP of editorial at Ubisoft. Um, working with uh, creative teams around the world on several game projects with our latest release being Mario plus Rabbit Sparks of Hope on the Nintendo Switch. Um, and as an author, I um, I wrote a book called Al-Khallab fi Fantasmim al-Alab or Al-Khallab in the Art of Game Design, the first book on game design in Arabic. And I do a lot of other stuff here and there, <laughs> but I guess uh, we're here to talk about a bit of that as well. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I actually had a friend coming from the US, so I was able to snag a copy uh, because oh, wow. yeah, I was super happy with it. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm still reading through it, but I absolutely love the fact that uh, it's, it's very well written. It's very concise. And honestly, oh, great for everyone from like beginners to intermediates to expert game, like game developers, designers and stuff. So I'm just loving what you've done so far. And the font. Oh, thank you so much. Oh. I was so surprised. Uh, it was it's, it's so easy to read. I was just really happy with it. <laughs> oh man, that's super good to hear. I've had like in you know, a divisive feedback about the phone. Some people are like, "Oh, it's too artsy for for my eyes," and others enjoyed it. So um, yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy that you get the chance uh, to awesome. to read it. I'm looking forward for your feedback once you finish it. For sure. For sure. Um, so can you tell us a bit about how you got into the games industry? Like everyone has a completely unique story. So, uh, you know, tell us a bit about <laughs> Yeah, you're right. You know, I often uh, ask people, how did you stumble into the games industry? Just because everybody has such a, a unique and different story to go into this. Um, and this is a podcast, so I assume that I'm going to be able to tell you the long story instead of like being, <laughs> being short and non-concise. Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think I've always wanted to make video games is the thing that I wanted to do since I was a little kid. My dad uh, bought us an Atari um, 2600 um, and I just got hooked, you know, started playing Space Invaders, which is the first game I ever played. And I just couldn't stop. And I was just completely mesmerized by the idea of being in this virtual world that I'm like a tourist and like going around and very inspired by that. And I think uh, when I was a young kid in uh, kindergarten, they asked us, what do you want to do when you grow up? And uh, my parents are hoarders. They don't throw away anything. So we still have that piece of paper. And uh, when all the other kids in class were writing that they want to be like astronauts and pilots and, you know, other cool jobs like that, I wrote, I want to make games in Japan. So from a very, very young age, I really 
like I was so infatuated with video games and it's the kind of thing I wanted to do. And I think it's why it ended up like driving a lot of my life decisions because I was always like, oh, does this thing help me make games? No, then <laughs> not interested. I'm going to like try to find the other thing that helps me make games. So in university, I met a bunch of uh, like-minded guys. Uh, I studied computer science in the University of Jordan. And uh, I met a bunch of other guys. Uh, we were all weebs, man. Like, you know, really into like uh, games, Japanese culture and stuff like that. And uh, some of us were studying Japanese uh, on the side together. And uh, we wanted to make a, a video game. Um, at the time, those guys, we're all programmers to some extent. And we had some artists. And I used to play music uh, in a band. And the guys came up to me and they were like... Um, we would like you to help us write the music for this game. We're making this Game Boy Advance game back in 2003. Uh, yeah, and it was just magical times. Like we all got together. The initial idea was that we'll make a vertical slice and we'll submit it as, a, you know, a, a graduation project for one of the other older guys in the group. I was 17 at the time. So this is why I have 20 years of experience, uh, <laughs> though I'm only 30, uh, 38, I think, at the time of this recording. Um, so yeah, we just rented a tiny space uh, above a baker store, and uh, we we paid like $10 a month each to to rent that space it was very hot considering that there's a furnace downstairs and we brought our computers from home but hey but hey we always had fresh bread you know so <laughs> it was Almost it was good day. food <laughs> absolutely <laughs> it was it was really good time we all got together we were making the, we were working on this game during the day and we we're playing games during the night it was uh, my first experience as an indie developer though i didn't realize it and then, like, um, those guys, and at the time, the entire game was 2.5 megabytes because that was the limitations of the, the Game Boy Advance. So, in fact, the screenshot of the game is now probably bigger than the game itself, which... <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. That's, yeah, go on. Yeah. No, so, yeah, I was just writing the music for the game, and the guys were like, you're, you know, you're always the wise-ass. Why don't you... Um, be also our game designer since we're too busy coding the game ourselves so uh, that's how it became a game designer and it stuck basically it's that's uh, all i've been doing for over the past 20 years that sounds like a lot of fun to be honest you you probably have most people's dream jobs because you know, <laughs> you meet, like one game designer and they're like oh my gosh i'm gonna make the next skyrim and you ask them like do you have a team of 20 like you know 2000 people or something and they're like i am two friends. So, you know, <laughs> the idea of starting out with, uh, with, you know, knowing a bit about game design definitely helped you, uh, you know, move from one step to another, correct? It was a really uh, cool experience because, um, you know, one of the things I'm, I feel like very grateful for about my career is that I have gone through pretty much a lot of those experiences from like being, uh, you know, two to three people dev teams to working on games with over 900 to 1000 people. So I've like seen the full spectrum of game making. And um, it's, uh, it's always fascinating in different ways. And um, there's a lot of the same principles of game design apply yet every time and every project, it's all, it feels like an entirely new endeavor. Um, which wise, I think it's always exciting. Like you can, <laughs> you can never say I've learned everything because there's just something new coming on, um, a brand new experience. Every game is its own project. Working with different people, bringing in like a lot of new experiences that you never think about. So 
Yeah, it's one of the mag- it's one of the things that makes this industry so magical, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Like, you know, whenever you play a specific game and you're like, oh my gosh, I love the way they did this. And you play another game and it like completely flips whatever they did on the head, but it also works really well. (laughs) It's because because it's like, like, um, um, hmm. it's it's like this magical combination between, you know, a technical uh, achievement, but also an artistic achievement. So there is like, you know, craftsmanship about like, how did they do that technically? Like really, how (laughs) did they manage to pull this off using the technology that they have? And there's also the artistic part of it in which like every person is like putting a little bit of their own uh, selves and personality and self-expression into their project and then they both come together so you know uh whatever game you're playing there's always like those two parts of appreciation into like technically how did that come to be and artistically what kind of experiences did those guys have to to translate this into this video game you know yeah absolutely it's it's honestly wonderful how we we are able to create different worlds for people to experience and just you know travel through And uh, on this front, can you tell us a bit about what a game designer actually does? So what are some responsibilities you have? What are some things you can influence and other things that people are like, you know, this is our job. So, you know, let us do it. So, yeah, um, I can definitely try to do that. So the game designer's role generally is to find the fun, which is a very like elusive uh, way to describe it. So the the game designer's role to some extent is to is to create the vision of what the game is supposed to be to some extent. Um it's to collaborate with others of making this vision a reality and it's tweaking that vision to make sure that it is fun for the players. So it's uh envisioning it um implementing it and then tweaking it until it's uh, it's a lot of fun and at the heart of it um we uh, it's a, it's about like i def- i define game design as uh, decisions that you make about any act of play and i believe there's a bit of a game designer in every single one of us in fact if you look at kids when they get together put any three kids in a room and then they will start to create a game you know like they will they will create rules like even for games that we know um they'll be like all right so we're going to be two of us i'm going to stand by the wall i'm going to count in 10 you guys got to hide um oh he's too fast so he's going to be on the other team so it's not just that they've come up with an idea and they're making the rule set of what makes it a game they're also tweaking it to make it fair and more fun and balanced. And in fact, they're applying all the principles of game design um, because active play is just a, a natural part of us as humans. And we tend to gravitate towards us. So there's a bit of a game designer within that. Uh, it's uh, it's like, you know, if you have a group of people in a swimming pool and you just throw them a ball and then they will they will end up creating a game themselves. Or like they'll be like, okay, you jump on my shoulder, you jump on uh, her shoulder, and let's try to push each other in the water. And first person that falls in the water loses. That is game design. They've just invented the game, and then they started to play it out. And then as they play it out, some things worked, some things didn't. So they make adjustment to the rules or like, 
uh, oh, it's not fair. The, she's so strong. She's always pushes me in the water. Let's let's change the teams up or something like this. This is tweaking imbalance, and then that ends up uh, being game design as well. So it's the same kind of principles, but we can apply it to board games, actual uh, real life uh, game situation, or to software that is game design to some extent. Yeah, 100%. It's also crazy how, you know, more and more of the world are going towards the idea of gamification. So mm -hmm. it's like they look at games and they're like, okay, people learn so much from them. And then they're like, how about we put this into, into games and stuff? So uh, yeah. do you have any, you know, any, any thoughts on the idea of gamification of the world in and of itself? Um, yeah, so uh, like I said, we, we, we tend to gravitate towards play and fun anyway. And I think a lot of the designs that we apply to our video games um, uh, can definitely apply to real life because they are at, at their heart based on intrinsic uh, motivations and um, you know human psychology to some extent of uh, as you're making a game or anything that is supposed to be engaging, you want to connect psychologically to the person that is viewing or interacting with your uh, with your work. And uh, to be sure that um, there are elements that are interesting and captivating for them to be able to interact with it. And, um, you know, unlike most other mediums in which you could just sit back and watch or view, uh, video games demand of you your attention as well as your interaction. So um, uh, there is more uh, research and work that's being done into like what could make something more captivating and uh, would want people to continue or want to join in and uh, to start to interact with this thing. And a lot of those can apply to real life situations. And I think when we started to kind of like uh, blend those two visions of uh, of the world, uh, we started to get some really interesting uh, things. And I think like one of my favorite examples is like, is, is usually not the direct use of gamification because people often want like, some serious um, use of the term. But like, I, I loved it when Pokemon Go came out and uh, everybody like kind of downloaded it on their phones. And then they literally started going on walks because they will catch some Pokemons. And then um, they started like uh, having conversations with strangers because, hey, did you see that Pokemon over there? What kind of Pokemon you're catching? Which team are you? And, you know, because of the video game that they had of hand, it gave them all kinds of reasons to have this mystical or um, uh, magical layer on simple everyday life stuff. And I think this is amongst the you know the the power and the beauty of video games is that because of how it's captivating, it uh, it can uh, affect our lives in that way. So imagine if you can like you know apply that same level of magic into um, I don't know working out or into you know dieting or into uh, collecting bottle caps you know <laughs> whatever it is like there there is an aspect of video games that can add that layer of magic with it very fair actually i completely agree i absolutely love the fact that you used pokemon go as an example because you know we, we see a lot of memes of people being like world peace was achieved when everyone downloaded pokemon go <laughs> so <laughs> yeah absolutely i i love this answer thank you
Um, My pleasure. Uh, I have a question about actually stories in games. Um, mm -hmm. so are there any stories that affected you and kind of like pushed you towards games, or do you do you have examples of stories that you know game games using stories to uh, kind of tell tell people about a specific thing or a certain action or something of the sort? So, mm -hmm. um, have do you have examples of games with stories that are not just fun, but more about like you know uh, something that affects you to the core, kind of like uh, an emotional movie or a book does? Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a very interesting question, and I think um, I'm going to unpack it into two sec uh, sections. Like you know, um, how I think games are powerful storytelling mechanism, and then I will mention some games that I really think that they did this uh, in a very powerful way. So as I mentioned earlier, like you know, video games, unlike any other medium, they demand your attention. That means you know, like in a Netflix show, let's say you're sitting there and you're receiving. And while you're watching, you can go like, I'm going to just look at my phone and answer a couple of text messages, then look back. And the show will continue to go on. Whereas a video game will be like, oh, you stopped watching, you fail. Now you have to start all over again. Like it, it requires you to be actively involved within the video game. And um, so it's basically an interactive medium in which you're, you're receiving and giving. You are you are an active part of how the, the the experiences are unfolding in front of you, and this is where I think the power of video games lie is because it allows you as the player to be an active part in the story as it unfolds. And I think some of the most powerful mediums in video games is that it allows you to explore narrative through player action and mechanics rather than you know traditional storytelling mechanisms such as watching a cutscene or hearing a dialogue. So, for example, one of my favorite games from a narrative point of view that really moved me um, is a game called This War of Mine. And it talks about, um, you know, how people were surviving during the war in Bosnia. And um, in, um, in a particular section in this game, um, so you have like a hideout and you have a bunch of people that are hiding and surviving the war as it happens. And in a game, you can take actions about how do you want to spend that night into like, you know, getting supplies or medicine or just basically protect the people that you are responsible of. And at some point in the game, one of the people that you're responsible of gets sick and you need to get the medicine. And... Um, We are now confronted with multiple choice. You can either go into a very heavily guarded barracks um, that has that medicine and try to break in there, and you could very much risk being shot and uh, die. Or you can go to this other residence where two old people live. They are completely uh, unprotected, and you can steal their medicine. They will not resist you. They will not harm you, but they will be affected by uh, you taking the medicine away from them. Or you can choose not to do anything, and then the person that you're taking care of ends up dying. Um, so as you can see, um, when you're put in that situation, the player needs to make a decision, and then they need to act that decision, and then the story will unfold based on their calls. And the most powerful thing happens in that moment is that when people describe that particular po point, They don't say my character did this or uh, Indiana Jones did this. They say I, I stole the medicine or I let the person in my home die. So it creates a very powerful sense of association between yourself and the character because you make the call, you feel 
that you are personally responsible for how the narrative unfolds. This is something that no other medium is capable of doing. And there's so many examples with, uh, within video games that allows you to do this. This War of Mine is an example, but there's Mass Effect as another example. You know, there's Papers, Please. There's all kinds of video games that I really love and enjoy that basically uses player interaction as a narrative tool. And no other medium can come even close to that power. When we're viewing um, a movie or reading a book, we all get the same experience. We might imagine some things differently in the case of a book, uh, but it's still the same words on the paper. But when there's an interactive element to that game, as you probably would have heard from anybody who played World of Warcraft or even FIFA, um, they will describe their gameplay experience as something that is deeply personal to them because they were the orchestrators of how that narrative unfolded to them. And that, for me, is probably amongst the most exciting uh, parts of being a part of the game business. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Like, sometimes when I'm talking to people who don't play many games, uh, I give the example of Batman. Like when you're playing a Batman game, you are the one that lets the bad guys go away. But when you're watching a movie, you're just, you know, mad at Batman for doing something. So it's like you take yourself and you put yourself in the place of the player uh, instead of, sorry, in, in the place of the character instead of watching the character do something. So it kind of switches you from being a third person viewer to a first person experiencer or something of the sort. So, yeah, it's uh, honestly, I, I love this war of mine. It gave such a perfect example. And anybody who's interested in playing games, you guys should probably try it out and see how you feel about it. Um, yeah. so, mm. I think, like, you know, no other medium can, like, you know, channel empathy in us in that same way. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you feel, you feel for the character. You feel like Batman. You feel like... Um, messy on the field you know like the video games allows you to uh really feel what it's like to be in someone's shoes and that is such a powerful tool absolutely and um on the flip side of that i actually have a question on um games that don't have a story and focus more on either entertainment wasting time or something of the sort so let's take the example of Candy Crush. Uh, uh -huh. Game designer, why do people enjoy these kind of games? <laughs> Candy Crush is also one of the games I worked on during my career. And uh, I think that um, any like uh, the narrative is not necessarily the only way why you're engaged with a video game. Video game, for, for the most part, is it, it channels you know fun within you. So it activates a part of your, your brain that, uh, that is... Um, enjoying it and you know like there is an inherent sense of fun in some things that we don't necessarily associate with with fun so for example before i bounce back to um to candy crush i'm going to give you a bunch of like rhetorical questions for for the for you and the listener to ponder on would you consider being scared fun an abstract, that sounds like a very, you know, odd question. Yet people line up for theme parks all the time and they watch horror movies uh, and all of that stuff. Would you consider the aspect of just collecting stuff to be fun? You know, and there's people that um, love to, you know, gather stamps 
from all over the world or um, you know yeah, like we, uh, you, yeah, go ahead we collect mugs and stuff so that's something like <laughs> and they're just like all over the place they're really so yeah. right you probably know or maybe you're one yourself one of those people that uh, <clears throat> keeps organizing and reorganizing their bookshelf uh, either by color or by size or in alphabetical order and you don't even like sometimes need to read the book. You just like what, look at the bookshelves and touch the splines of the books as they're now currently in order. And that gives you an immense sense of satisfaction. Is this like, you know, what you tradi traditionally label as fun, right? But it's something innate within us. Or like somebody just uh, grabbing like bubble wrap and you're popping them one at a time. Uh, there's something inherently satisfying and fun within us. And as game designers, I think a lot of our job is to find those moments, you know. Um, if, if, you, if you notice that, oh, like, I feel oddly satisfied of putting things in order. So I wonder if placing three things that look the same in order is fun. And, you know, and sure, uh, and sure enough, you can, like, you know, create the gameplay experience that is basically around that. So, you know, a lot of the fun comes in, not necessarily from um, from identifying or, like, you know, relating with a story or have, like, a direct emotional input that we associate with joy or anger or whatnot. There's a lot of fun in figuring out patterns. So if, if, you, if you, like, there is fun in developing pattern recognition. In fact, this is one of the things that Raf Koster argues about in uh, one, uh, one of my favorite books. It's called A Theory of Fun. And he argues about, like, um, how um, fun at its heart is identifying patterns. And the minute you identify all the patterns, you start to get bored. So, for example, uh, he uses tic-tac-toe as uh, one of those examples in which you identify fun. And it's a game that is very engaging when you're first playing it, but once you figure out all the patterns, which is very finite, then it's no longer engaging. The fun is over. So, fun goes beyond, you know, like the, the basic entertainment and all of that stuff. And, you know, basing all the examples that I mentioned and like, you know, trying to define what fun is, um, it will make a lot of sense why something like Candy Crush is super engaging. There's inherent fun in putting things in order. There's inherent fun in finding out a pattern in what seems to be chaos. There's inherent fun in overcoming something that is deeply challenging and even frustrating. So like, you know, uh, playing a level and losing so many times until you finally beat it, beat it that is universally fun. Um, you know, like finding the different shapes across a, a seemingly randomly placed grid and make all the yellow pieces placed next to each other, figuring out that puzzle, that is fun. Things that uh, are in a random order becoming in order is inherently fun for our brain. And Candy Crush as a video game can uh, uh, satisfy a lot of those needs. This is why this game has been downloaded over 3 billion times. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, like as, as, as much as, as many games as I played, rarely would I be able to say that one of the games that I have worked on has been downloaded by half of Earth. You know, and it's probably one of my most recognized uh, games that I have worked on. And it's because it's uh, it's so inherently fun for a lot of people. 
uh, and it touches on a lot of those aspects that I have mentioned. Absolutely. And I think one of the things I've realized is uh, the core gameplay loop of, you know, putting things in order, the way the, the, sound, the sounds pop, the kind of like colors that you see, the, the satisfaction of the animation that you get either when you finish the level or when you just, you know, put things in order. All of these things, I feel, also push the players to play the game more and more because doing the act of putting things in order is fun and seeing them disappear yeah. done with that and just waiting for the next thing that you don't know that's going to come on screen is also pretty fun. Because, you know, there's there's fun in the mystery, there's fun in the actual game, there's fun in the actions that you do. And uh, the fact that you have, you know, just a limited number of moves gives you a bit of a challenge. So it's like all of this meshed together gives you this this wonderful little thing to, to toy around with, quite literally. That's a super <laughs> cool analysis, man, following that discussion. You're absolutely right. And if I would go back to the, to the Pokemon example that we've had earlier, um, completion is fun. And it's in the tagline. I gotta catch them all. The fun of the game is that. And is it about actually looking at the pictures of all of those? I don't know now. There are 300 or 400 Pokemon. <laughs> you know, I started to lose count after like the OG part. Uh, um, there is inherent fun in finishing off what you started. So the idea that I have this one Pokemon and I can complete the Pokedex of all the Pokemons, there is an inherent fun in that sense of accomplishment and achievement. Um, so it's not just the act of walking or the act of talking to people. There's also that, you know, that um, that northern star of one day I'm going to catch all the Pokemons and then I will feel that satisfaction. The journey towards that uh, completion um, itch is also fun in its own right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's, that's honestly like, you know, it, it opens my eyes to different ways of seeing specific games and just seeing what I'm doing in a game. You know, you've got like the achievement hunters that want to finish the game just to show off a badge of honor to a certain extent. You know, you've got the people that beat games like Dark Souls and Elden Ring and they're like, oh my God, I, I beat one of the hardest games ever. So yeah, it's basically, it's it's fun to play the game and you become proud of yourself for, for achieving something specific that you can show off or, you know, tell other people that you've done this basically. Um, and, and you can connect that to a lot of other things, even in your daily life that are like, you know, that part of fun or completion is inherent to our to, to how we think. You know, for example, in Ramadan, you're counting the days until the, the month is complete so that you can celebrate, you know, an Eid, for example. Or, um, you know, like if you look at like a lot of people who have a, a high sense of achievement, um, let's say um, they are working towards a goal of losing weight. And they have a target weight that they want to achieve in. And then usually once a week or once a month, they are measuring, they're doing the work. And then they're seeing, oh, I lost one centimeter of waste. I have three more to go. There's a sense of satisfaction there. So it's it's not just getting there like, all right, I have the beach bot and I'm ready to go. But it's also the journey towards that, that sense of completion that's happening, that is inherently engaging. And that is, you know, rolling back to what makes a game designer job interesting, is that you notice these things. And then you go like, okay, so in order for, like, you know, there are, there are types of people that are deeply motivated with achievement. How can I recreate that experience within a video game? to get them to, uh, to feel that sense within the, this world that I've creating as well. 
Absolutely. Like I'm personally someone that doesn't enjoy working out because I feel like it's just lifting weights and putting them back in place. So yeah. I, I did uh, like a mini challenge. We have a whiteboard at home. So I wrote zero out of 10,000 and I want to do 10,000 pushups sooner or later. So every time I do one, I just, you know, erase the mini number and then I, I put it up and then it just keeps increasing. So uh, one of the reasons I like games is because you can't really lose because even when you lose, you're just set back, but you don't actually fail in anything. Whereas in, you know, exams and life and stuff, you know, if you fail at work, you get fired. If you fail in class, you get held back. But in games, it's always like there's there's a level of I can try again because uh, failing isn't that big of a consequence. It's just like a mini setback for for better experience or like pushing yourself forward. So 100 percent. Um, wonderful. <laughs> so uh, following on that vein, uh, as a game designer, uh, when you know how often are the projects that you show uh followed up with and how many times are they like you know put to the side how do you basically showcase that your work um is something that people should work on and should be fun for players oh man uh, it's um it's uh, the very act of design across all of all like any act of design even if it's industrial design i'm making a chair um, it's, it's, you know, you starting off with a problem statement of saying, like, I want to create something so that these types of people can use it in this way. So in the case of uh, make, making a chair, me, I'm saying, I want to make this object that people can sit on and feel comfortable. So I start off by going to the board and imagining, what does this chair look like? Does it satisfy you know, the, the needs that I have. Does it allow people to sit on it? Um, does it have enough space? Is it balanced enough so that it stays on the ground so that it carries the weight of the people, blah, blah, blah. And then like I put the design of what this chair is supposed to be. And then we review the design and go like, actually, the design of the chair you made requires three people to hold it because it only has one leg so that the person can balance on it. But how often do people have three people around to hold the chair. So maybe that's not good design. Let's move to something else. So there are some designs in which they are dismissed from the paper concept in which like, you know, we have an idea that is supposed to address that a particular um, self-identified problem. Other people call it a vision. <laughs> and uh, you, 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 you see if like the design um, satisfies that vision or not. And sometimes it passes the paper, go like, all right, I think I can make a chair using three legs, but uh, make it completely out of paper mache. And then you make a prototype of it or you make it and then someone sits on it and breaks into pieces and you go like, okay, so maybe that wasn't, maybe that doesn't work. What else can we do? Maybe we can reinforce it with steel and now it works. Or maybe we can, and that is part of the design process in which like we've moved from the theoretical design to accept and dismiss. Then we started to, to prototype and build and test. And we test and see if people like it or not. And then we move forward from there. And a video game is no different than that uh, chair example in which like, you know, somebody can come up with an idea of going like, I think collecting, you know, hundreds of imaginary animals is going to be a fun idea. That is probably like the beginning of the of the notion and then you start to put together a design like so what does that look like how do people collect these animals how um how do they interact with the world around them so that they can collect these animals and then you know like you review them together and go like oh this sounds like it can work 
And I think the people that like this kind of stuff will like this. All of this checks out. Let's move on to the next phase and to start to build something, have people play it, watch them play it, then come back, make some changes, do it again until the game is ready and you launch it. That's like, you know, in abstract how how it works. So a lot of times the the idea is dismissed from the when it's in my brain before I even say it. It's in my brain. I'm going like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if it's like, nah, actually, that's terrible. Uh, so there's no need for me to say that even. And sometimes I'll be excited about something. I put it on paper and then I show it to a group of my friends, not even my colleagues. And I go like, I'm thinking about working on this. And then they start to poke holes at it. And they're like, yeah, you guys are right. I don't think this is good. So I then come back and make changes. Sometimes it's my colleagues and sometimes it's the end user that just gives us feedback about like how, uh, we didn't figure something out in the correct way. And then we see what kind of adjustments that we can make. Design at its heart, whether it's graphic design, industrial design, engineering, it's um, it's uh, identifying a vision, planning it, and testing it. And testing it is a huge part of deciding uh, when it uh, goes forward and when it stays. So how often you ask, I would answer all the time, <laughs> uh, pretty much all the time. Even if a project is there, there's so many like you know small ideas that can go and can go not that will go through that same process that I mentioned to you, dismissing it even from the brain phase all the way to the implementation phase. Sometimes we yank stuff out of the game just because it weren't working. And sometimes we delay a game because it wasn't working the way we wanted and we make the adjustments so that it works. Um, Sometimes it's magic and it all comes together from the first time, but that is never the case. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, uh, it happens all the time. Yeah, like I've partially experienced that as well. You know, you start out, for example, in game jams, when you you know meet up with someone and have to work on a game for like two days, you start super excited to like work on an idea. And then, you know, two hours later, you're like, this is a bit too big. And then 40 out of 48 hours later, you're like, oh my gosh, this is still too big. So you just cut off as much as you can from the game and just like, you know, shrink it or change the way it is. Or just, you know, when you're introducing it, you introduce it as something completely different than what you started with. So, so yeah, uh, game design is, is tough, but it's pretty rewarding when it works out for you. Um, exactly. Because like I mentioned earlier, there's a, a big part of you that's in that game. So um, the, the the part of validation when like you see people that are enjoying this is because people enjoyed my ideas, my contributions, that part of me that I'm sharing with them. So there's an inherent sense of validation when you see people enjoying your work. Absolutely. Um, so I have two questions that are going to follow up with each other. So the first yeah. one is, uh, where do you get inspiration to make, you know, some games or some mechanics and stuff? And who do you feel can get into game design? Okay. Oh, uh, two very um, related and uh, can be quite unrelated questions as well. I'll start with the inspiration one. So I get inspiration, like the the short answer is I get it from everything. Ultimately, um, we can't create what we don't know. So everything we make is coming out from something deep within us. So it could be our personal experience, it could be our personal preference, it could be our perspective, and it could be our own views of the world. So whenever we uh, 
whenever we set out on making something, we are bringing all of that into the forefront to that thing to come out. And therefore, like, you know, um, whatever input I get through life experiences, through reading books, through watching movies, through conversing with others, um, ends up inspiring me. And I think the, my my biggest source of inspiration is uh, uh, is through analogous inspiration. Analogous inspiration is when you are looking at a, a field that has nothing to do with the problem that you're solving, and then your brain somehow makes this random connection and an idea comes out. You know, like, uh, for example, the, the, the guy that designed the Nike Air Shoes um, thought of that design while they were looking at the Pompidou building in Paris. The, side, the, the pipes at the side of the building made him think like, oh, it would be cool if there's a transparent pipe at the bottom of the shoe. And then he ended up making a shoe out of it. Even like, you know, um, George Lucas was inspired by Casamia in Barcelona to design the helmets of the stormtroopers. Um, the shape of them was inspired by the looking at the building himself. Uh, so the, the the eureka moment comes out when analogous inspiration is in full swing, is when you're thinking of what you want to make, and then you open up your eyes to the world for input, and you make that random connection. In fact, Archimedes himself, when he had his eureka moment, he wasn't doing physics. He was taking a bath. You know, he wasn't like, you know, in a, in a lecture hall working on something. He was literally in a bathtub and looked at the water and goes like, Eureka, I got it. Yeah, light bulb pops up in his head. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. And so, uh, I, being aware of this, I am constantly trying to get as much input as possible from everything. And then as I getting that input, and sometimes I have this eureka moment, one way to groom ideas for inspiration, I like to talk about it with people I, uh, I respect. Because um, as I start to bring up those ideas to those people, they will get inspired themselves. They'll be like, oh, this reminds me of this, or this reminds me of that. And then they're throwing in even more input. Or like, oh, if you like this idea, you should totally read this book, or you should totally watch this movie. And all of a sudden, like by discussing that eureka moment, I now have so many other sources that I could pile up to further nurture that uh, concept to become a design instead of, you know, just uh, an idea. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I really like the fact that it's not just play games to make games. It's more like explore the world and see what's around you and take inspiration from everything that exists in, in your surroundings and things that are out of your comfort zone in order to make something that's great. Because, um, you know, some of the best games are ones that are innovative. And the only way to innovate is to look elsewhere, <laughs> practically. Absolutely. So, you know, like uh, Miyamoto when he was a kid. So Shigeru Miyamoto is the creator of the Super Mario franchises, The Legend of Zelda, and many others. Uh, when he was a kid, he used to wander the streets of Kyoto. And at the sides of buildings, there were rain pipes. And he used to, as a kid, he used to look inside those rain pipes and he used to wonder what's on the other side. As a kid, he thought that if I can manage to shrink myself and go into that pipe, I can probably come out at another world at the other end. 
And then later on in life, he made the green pipes in Mario, in which Mario goes into the pipe and literally comes out at another world in his games. So it was a direct inspiration from, uh, from a real-life experience and imagination and perspective that was directly translated into a gameplay experience. Absolutely. And the fact that he also picked uh, one specific mechanic for Mario to do, which is just jump, uh, allowed him to be creative with specific constructs, basic, uh, specific, sorry, um, what's it called? Uh, like constraints. He, 100%, thank you. <laughs> so uh, it, it's like a mix of inspiration, constraints, and vision, basically, that helps you make a pretty good game, I would say. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, like vision at its heart, you know, as I mentioned it earlier, vision, the game vision is basically a problem statement, is that I want to do this so that uh, the players can feel that. So if you think about it, a vision is basically a problem statement, so it's constraints. So if I make a game that doesn't make people feel, make this, then I didn't satisfy the problem. Therefore, I am outside of the constraints I put on myself. A vision at its heart, it's, uh, it's self-inflicted constraints. Because ultimately, we can't. it's very difficult for us to create without constraints. And even like in a blue sky or like imaginative, you, have, you can do whatever you want. You will end up creating constraints on yourself so that you'll be able to create within. And I would argue that constraints is an essential part of the creative process. Yep, agreed. This is wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> loving, loving this discussion. It's, it's, it's amazing that... <laughs> to basically, you know, learn about this from, from, from you, a professional, basically, in the industry and stuff. My um, pleasure, man. Uh, so I do have a few more questions about, uh, well, your book and the region and stuff. So I yeah. guess with your book, uh, why did you write it? I mean, there are a ton of game design books. So why, you know, why would you write one and why is it in Arabic? Yeah. Um, so, you know, like, as I mentioned, when I started out, I just went through a lot of problems uh, and problem solving and I've everything I've learned was basically through trial and error you know um, when I was starting out I didn't know what a game developer even looked like I've never seen one like they all seem to be like these you know mythical uh, beings that exist in lands far far away and I had no idea if what I was doing was right or wrong you know and I feel like you know I was in a fortunate situation that like you know I have learned English at a young age I could speak English and I've had people that lived overseas and every time they were traveling I was asking them to get me books uh, so that I can at least get some validation from somewhere that what I'm doing is right you know I I, I, I worked I made games for seven years and I still couldn't call myself a game developer because I didn't know if I was because I had nothing to compare to or no one to uh, talk to or to measure up towards, you know. I think it was when I started working in an international company for the first time, I was like, oh, okay, I, I actually do know things. And like, you know, and like these guys are figuring out stuff the same way I was. Okay, so maybe I wasn't that far off. And like, it was really hard for me to get into the industry. And I went through a lot of like imposter syndrome and self-doubt and getting information was very difficult. And I just didn't want people to go through that same, you know, I wanted people to be able to get like, you know, knowledge that is available elsewhere, but without having to learn another language first, 
Um, so the idea for me was always to spread knowledge. So like, you know, I know people like it in written form. So I have that available in writing It's the cheapest that Amazon allowed me to price it at. Uh, but um, even that the entire content of the book I've recorded in a video format uh, as a one week crash course on uh, a platform, idrock.org. And it's available for everybody for free. It's an educational platform that is sponsored by the Jordanian government. And I collaborated with those guys to record it and put it on their platform for free. So if uh, people can't afford to get the book or it doesn't get shipped to them, they can get all of that knowledge. Uh, it's available for them for free in uh, on that website. And I've, um, you know, I'm very approachable or try to be, and I'm very, uh, I try to be present in like, you know, Arab game gatherings or and now try to even widen that influence to include even non-Arab regions. Um, just on that point of, you know, trying to help people get into video games, but just because it was so hard for me. So it's very personal, uh, the, the way I'm taking this. It was so difficult for me that I want to be, I want to be the person I wish I've met when I started. And I am, you know, trying to create that book to help people to um, to get into um, game development. And this is why, like, you know, the book is available in Arabic, because I feel like a lot of this knowledge is available in other languages. Um, but uh, now I'm working on another book um, in English. And uh, this this is about the creative process. So a lot of the stuff we discussed about inspiration, ideas, and originality. And um, I feel that I'm I can bring something new to the international um, uh, reader, but I will also reserve the rights to translate it to English uh, to Arabic. So uh, it will be in Arabic at some point as well. But you know now I can like you know the idea of giving back i'm widening it as much as possible to kind of help people create and uh, make games and join us as colleagues in this industry yeah absolutely like this is honestly wonderful and i i keep looking through the book every now and then and it's like in between the pictures between the different you know diagrams that you have uh, the 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 way it's written and stuff it's just you know it's it's perfect for anyone who wants to get into learning it without having either a mentor or someone to look up to this book is is a, is a pretty good starting point so uh, so good to hear thank you absolutely <laughs> so on this uh, come in following this idea um, what do you think is missing from the region in terms of uh, just games basically like what is missing for people to make games because from what i've seen we've got a lot of talented people but it's just mm. it's tough to to see people put the talent into effect so what do you think is missing as a as a pro mm. so you know like when i started uh, making games you know back then uh, there wasn't even that many people making games even as independent developers we were like you know we were like weirdos i think it was just us and at the time there was the guys uh, in syria afkar media they were making a game called taht al ramad under ash i think in english uh, and it was just like you know the only the two of us actually like you know doing something about video games at, at you know at all and then i remember like you know i moved moved away and i was like you know i worked in new zealand and japan and i moved back to jordan and there was the you know grassroots projects that happened in jordan and there was like a, a like I was invited to speak at the Jordan 7th Gaming Summit. And I was like, what, there's seven of those? And I get on, on stage and I see over 800 people in the audience, game makers, 
um, ranging from 12 years old up until like, you know, adults. And I look at the Jordanian uh, game development scene that is now spread across the several regions. There are multiple companies now that range from publishing to development, you know, from Afkar Media to Rababa Games to like all kinds of different um, uh, Babel games. They're all good friends and shout out to all of them if you're listening. Um, and there are too many to mention. So like, you know, um, there's now an ecosystem in which like there are games coming out and uh, there are people that are actively making games that started off from, you know, humble beginnings all the way to like now games releasing on PlayStation and Xbox and stuff like that. So we have like, you know, triple A, a core triple A development that is happening within the region. And, um, um, so the, the the evolution is, and we have a bunch of exits as well. So we have a couple of companies that are actually like you know bought outright by other by other companies and got like further investment. So we have a scene and an ecosystem that is evolving and growing, and it only starts by like you know a bunch of people doing it, and then a bunch of crazy people, I guess, doing it, and then others looking at them and go like, oh, if they did it, then I can as well, and then you know let's go, and then we start to do that, and eventually I think what we need is that one big hit that will create that uh, juggernaut or that institute within the culture of the region that will start to gravitate all the talent when they make like bigger project. And then people will come out of that institute and then they start to make their own smaller studios and they, they do their own thing. You know, like I always use CD Projekt Red as an example of that in Poland, for example, in which like it, it wasn't known for games development that much. And, you know, CD Projekt Red was literally a CD shop um, that like started to make, you know, mods to grow, to become a, a video game developer, to become one of the biggest game developers in the world. And basically it's, uh, a lot of people worked at CD Projekt Red, came out to do their own studios, and now we have a very active and thriving game development community in Poland. Um, that same thing applied to uh, many other places in Sweden. I think most studios in Sweden has somebody that was ex-DICE at some point, because it's a studio that's been in the, as an institute in the in the country that's been around for over 25 years. Uh, over 30 years, actually, at this point. So when you have like a studio that's been in the region for 30 years and having a lot of success, people will go in, make a bunch of games, learn, come out, start their own studio, and they make something out of it. So we are slowly but surely heading there. We need that one game to to hit, to create that institute for us to even have an even more thriving uh, Community, And I would argue that we already have that in the mobile space to some extent, and we need to start to see it happening across like PC and 360, uh, 360. PC and uh, <laughs> you can see that I'm stuck in 2007 uh, across like PC and console. And stuff, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I and, agree. Uh, go, go ahead, Ashraf. I was just going to say that here in Lebanon, you know, we have a bunch of uh, game companies. Like when I started working in 2020, uh, you know, I had known of around four or five companies all in Lebanon. And I was pleasantly surprised to see that, you know, some of the companies here have like games with a million plus downloads. And as you said, most of them are on mobile. So uh, I'm excited to see, you know, what we're going to be creating on uh, PC, on, uh, on consoles and stuff. And something that is going to, you know, hopefully hit big. And it's just like, 
topic. Uh, again, just like we, we talked about in game design, uh, we as uh, as Arabs have a completely different point of view on the world, on the way that we interact with each other, the kind of things that we would like to see and the kind of stories that we want to tell. So all of this mixed together is going to give a really nice uh, taste in, in, in new games that are going to come out. But just like you said, we need the, the crazy team that's going to take the leap and, uh, you know, uh, go for something pretty big. So, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, like, uh, we lack a lot in terms of, like, uh, government uh, funding and sponsorship, unfortunately, mm -hmm. like, where you can find that a lot more common in Europe and other places. Um, but... Um, Ultimately, we have the talent, and I like I constantly tell like local teams in the Middle East is like all you need is your brains, computers, and an internet connection, and luckily we have an abundance of all three. Um, so uh, even with the absence of like financial support, I do believe that we can over uh, overcome that and make something spectacular uh, i remember like when i met with the nintendo folks very early on uh, they were like what do you even make games in the middle east uh, i didn't even we didn't even know that you guys even play games over there and um they told me something that stuck with me is like you know we they said that we've been telling stories from our cultures for decades and so were the west but you guys are coming out from a completely different region of the world with a completely different perspective we can't wait to see what you're going to end up making, you know, like how can you bring this perspective to the world? And uh, I joined them. I am very excited to see what games will come out of the region. Absolutely. Yeah. So final question from my end. Um, what do you think up and coming developers should do to get started? Um, you know, like if you want to become a world-class runner, you have to start running. <laughs> if you want to be a writer, you have to start writing. So if you want to be a game developer, you have to start making games. And that could range from anything, making games on yourself, finding a bunch of people making games together, going and studying programming so that you can apply for a game-making job so you can make games, getting internships in companies so that you can get the experience of making games so I can get jobs making games, going and getting a degree in game development at the game development school. Um, yeah, you gotta, like, uh, if you wanna, if you wanna run a marathon, you better start running, you know? And um, if you wanna make games, you better hone that skill and start making games. So, and there are so many ways that you can do this. And there's so many resources out there to help you. You can literally just Google, start making games, and you can find so many avenues for you to start. And hey, if you st still don't know where to start, you can always reach out to me, reach out to Ashraf, reach out to so many other people um, that are in the process and tell them, hey, how can I start making games? And they will bombard you with links. <laughs> so just do that. Absolutely. And I would just add, like, you can also talk to your communities. Like, I've been in contact with almost every community in every Arab country. So wherever you are in the world, you're most likely going to find a community that you can talk to. You know, there's there's Arabic games, there's the Gaming Academy, there's country name, game developers. So there are tons of resources all over that you can definitely use, plus tutorials online. So See, Ashraf yeah. is already bombarding you with links. <laughs> <laughs> definitely just, reach out. Absolutely. And speaking of reaching out, how can people, you know, uh, talk to you? Oh, uh, of course, they can reach out to me. I'm uh, I'm on everything social, so you can find me at, at Twitter at at Fauzi Mesmar um, on Twitter. Um, 
You can find me on LinkedIn. Just search for my name, Fauzi Mesmar. You can find me over there. You can go into my uh, website. It's fauzi.zone. So you can uh, find me over there. Um, you can listen to me blab about video games with two other game developers, uh, Osama Dorias and Rami Ismail at the Habibis. So you can go to thehabibis.com and listen to us talk about game design, game culture, and Arab culture every now and then. And yeah, um, just uh, I also on Instagram at Fauzi Mesmar. You can find my public profile there and uh, see what shenanigans I'm up to. Um, so yeah, Fauzi. So just a few more questions, I guess. Uh, so first one is, what are you reading or watching? Uh, second one is, who would you love to shadow for a day and just you know learn from or just check out and stuff? Uh, what do you, do you feel most people misunderstand about the things that you work in as a game designer and? Uh, Whose work do you admire most and what, you know, what have they done that inspires you? What am I reading right now? I'm currently reading a book by Eric Fromm called Escape from Freedom. It's a, it's a really interesting philosophy book that I'm really enjoying. And what am I watching? I'm watching The Mandalorian Season 3. Um, what would you love to sh- uh, who would you love to shadow for a day? Um, absolutely has to be uh, the late Satoru Iwata, who was uh, the the president of Nintendo and a person, um, I guess I can answer two questions in the same time, is a person that I admire the most in the games industry and I really look up to and has inspired me a lot in my career. Satoru Iwata has left uh, a big mark on a lot of people's lives, uh, mine included. Um what do people most misunderstand about your work? <laughs> uh, so many, I get so many things, uh, but probably the most common one is that they say, oh, you make video games, so you must be playing games all day long. And uh, that is probably the most common misunderstanding because making games is so hard. I don't think I play as many games as I used to because I'm so busy making games. <laughs> uh, that's a very common misconception. No, we're mostly working really hard and when we're running the game to test it it is broken and it's terrible and uh, we are trying to make it good and it's a it's a fun experience in its own right but it's definitely not playing games (laughs) cool awesome thank you so much for your time uh thank you for you know uh having a chance to talk to us and uh it's it's a pleasure so thank you for having me absolutely yeah take care we'll speak soon you too hey i hope you enjoyed that episode If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to hafikita.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com slash support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks.